following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians or People Too. Brian Feltman, how's it going, man? I'm doing well. How's it going, Bill Allison? I'm all right. Uh, looks like we're actually going to do this. Yeah, we've been talking about it for a few months now. It's uh, nice to see it actually uh, actually happening. Yeah, we've got some guests racked and stacked over, over the next few weeks, and we're going to get this Military Historians or People 2 podcast underway. Who are we talking to today? Well, today we are pleased to have Rob Satino joining us on Military Historians Are People Too. Dr. Satino is the Executive Director of the Institute for the Study of War and Democracy and the Samuel Zamuri Stone Senior Historian at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Before heading to the National World War II Museum, Satino spent five years as professor of history at the Military History Center at the University of North Texas. He got his start in academia at Lake Erie College back in 1984, and then he went on to spend about 15 years at Eastern Michigan University. In addition, Rob has held visiting appointments at the U.S. Army War College and U.S. Military Academy, and he is the author of 10 books, including The Wehrmacht Retreats, Fighting a Lost War, 1943, which was awarded a Distinguished Book Award by the Society for Military History, The German Way of War, From the Thirty Years' War to the Third Reich, and Blitzkrieg to Desert Storm, The Evolution of Operational Warfare. In addition to winning a Distinguished Book Award from the SMH, Blitzkrieg to Desert Storm was also awarded the American Historical Association's Paul Birdsall Prize. You know, Rob is one of the good guys in this in the military history community, and uh, you've known him for a while. I've known him for a long time. He's done so much for scholarship, you know, with the Wehrmacht and everything for World War II, German military history, but also just for the profession in general. And his work at the World War II Museum has really been pretty fabulous. So I think we're going to have a fun time talking with him today. Uh, you know, his background, where he's been, what he wants to do, stuff like that. We might ask him what his favorite cocktail is in New Orleans <laughs> as well, man. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I think this will be a lot of fun. Yeah, Rob's done a really good job of doing some serious academic work, but also being involved in uh, projects that, that have a real general public impact as well. So it's a pleasure to have him here today. Cool. Well, let's talk to Rob Satino. There we go. Got it. You know, yeah, we're... We, we're excited about it. And, you know, I think, you know, the, you know, the logo is kind of cool. And, um, you know, it's like you were just saying, I mean, it, this idea that, that military historians, you know, we, we got yards to mow. We do stuff, right? Um, yeah. Or, or we do. You don't. Uh, Mr. I live in a condo in New Orleans. Well, um, you know, I mean, I sometimes run out of ice during happy hour. It's not all roses here in the Crescent City. There, we have our own crises. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, no, hey, we really appreciate you talking with us today. And I'm and thrilled, everything. man. This is, I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, we're we're gonna we're gonna have a really good chat with you. Um, we're gonna surprise you with a few things at the end with some some really quick questions to to oh, test dear. your abilities. Oh dear uh, God! But but otherwise, it's just kind of a let let people get to know. Uh, uh, Robert Samuel Elliott Morrison Satino. 
uh, winner of the Samuel at Morrison Prize, the Society for Military History for, uh, I don't know if you'd call that lifetime achievement, right? It's more, it's more well, like your, your major contributions to the, you know, to the field, right? Yes, it is a lifetime scholarship award. So, when, when you know, when you say lifetime achievement, it sounds like John Wayne, who, you know, who never got an Academy Award. So at the end of the day, they had to give him something. But I'd like to think that the Samuel Alec Morrison Prize is a bit more than that. Um, you know, it's funny, Samuel, you, you start looking him up, Samuel Elliott Morrison, you know, rear admiral, I, I thought, you know, he's like hornblower. I thought he commanded ships on the high seas. He was a, he was a historian who they commissioned as a right officer and, and gave him access. So he, you know, he did get access, but really he's just an ordinary guy like us who, who happened to witness World War II from a real nice perch because his buddy, Franklin Roosevelt, let him into the room. So it's a it's an interesting story. He sure did pay. He paid that trust back with the, whatever it is, 12 magnificent volumes that are readable by the, you know, by the public as well as by naval history geeks. So it's an honor. I, I, I like to kid about everything in my life and make a joke, but it's hard to joke about winning a nice award like that. It was really it was wonderful. It's it's really cool, man. Um, yeah. So those volumes for the that's like the official naval Navy history, right? For World War II, like the green I guess books. It serves, I guess it serves as the. There may be other volumes. I don't, you know, go talk about we. We already hit the limits of my knowledge five minutes into this discussion. There may be other volumes, but I, I think as far as the Navy's concerned, and as far as most of the reading public is concerned, if you want to know about naval ops in World War II, you turn to Morrison. Yeah, sure, excellent. Well, okay, we're going to start off, uh, talk a little bit about your background, uh, growing up in Ohio, attending Ohio State, uh, go Bucks. Uh, what were you going to be other than, uh, you know, a member of, of a famous band? What was I going to be? That's, that's fantastic. I, so first of all, did I grow up in Ohio? I grew up in Cleveland, on the, on the west side <laughs> of Cleveland. I think of Ohio as a kind of a big, amorph, almost amorphous rural place, and Cleveland, of course, is sort of you know, grimy, uh, uh, sort of grimy limit of it in the north. So, you know, I grew up in a in an industrial city on the ethnic west side, where white ethnic groups live. The east side is a huge African-American area and also, um, you know, sort of the, the Jewish quarter of, of Cleveland as well. So you could say there's immense poverty and immense wealth together on the east side. The, the west side was more of that sort of everybody had everybody's name ended in a vowel kind of white ethnic yeah. Area went to the uh, Jesuit high school in in Cleveland, which is uh, Saint Ignatius Loyola. Oddly enough, of course, what else would it be named? Um, so I was, um, you know, I was a precocious little boy, and I loved to read, and I loved to read about World War II. My dad had been in World War II, um, but I, I like to do a lot of things. Um, I also like to play guitar. I started doing that very early on, eighth or ninth grade in my life, and developed a real aptitude for it. And it, it, again, if you say, what did you want to be when you were growing up? I, I wanted to be um, Jimmy Page. I, I wanted to front my own Led Zeppelin style band. And I learned to play guitar in that style and, and still spent much of my typical waking hours, you know, with a, with a guitar in my hand. But um, boy, if anybody, if there's one truth about, about the music business, it's that it's really not what you know or how good you are. It's just what kind of lucky break you are. They usually say it's who you know, which may, may, may be a good way of putting it. Um, I decided I wanted to do something, you know, a little steadier. And so I became a history professor. I mean, if you, if you think about it, that's almost, that's almost. Uh, yeah, that's kind of counterintuitive a little bit. Um, counterintuitive is, is. Yeah, well, is, it was, it was it Tennessee Williams that said that, that uh, 
there's there's three great cities in the United States: New York, San Francisco, and New Orleans, where you live now. And and everywhere everywhere else is Cleveland. So I could call my wife Roberta, Bill, whom you know very well. I could call Roberta into the room wearing that T-shirt with that, that, <laughs> that Tennessee Williams uh, uh, Tennessee Williams epigram. So you know, I've thought about that a lot, and <clears throat> it used to offend me when I heard that as a Clevelander because I love Cleveland and. Um, it offends my friends when they hear it. We, Roberta bought her sister that T-shirt. She refuses to wear it. But I thought, about what, I thought about what Williams was trying to say there. When he wrote that, Cleveland was not the 1970s Cleveland where the river catches on fire and the mayor's hair catches on fire and Johnny Carson makes a joke about you every night. It was a, it was a kind of um, anonymous uh, industrial city of the sort that America had 50. There were 50 Clevelands uh, at one time. By the way, Cleveland in World War II, the eighth largest city in America. So I think what he was saying is, you know, look, there's, there's a, you know, you got New York and it's got that crazy. And it got, excuse me, you got New York, yeah, New York, you got New Orleans, it's got that crazy. You got San Francisco, it's got that crazy. And the rest is kind of like industry and business and corporate. And I, I do think that's what he was saying, as opposed to the rest of America is a joke like Cleveland. So that is probably 10 times more thought than anyone in the country has ever devoted to that saying by Tennessee Williams, but we'll probably leave it there. But it provides proper context. Good. That's what right? I'm about. Yeah, I'm absolutely. About. Um, so so why, why, why'd you decide then to, to, to go the history route? So I, you know, as a, I, I would describe myself as a, a smart boy, always eager to please his parents, especially his mom, by hitting the books as, as, as hard as possible. I, some I might call a, that a call call that a suck up. Uh, maybe, um, but you know, you didn't know my mom. She's a beautiful woman, and I just wanted to I just wanted to make her happy. So I was always a precocious reader, and my dad had been in World War II, and as a young boy, I mean, ten, but not yet ten. Um, I was reading books on, on especially the Pacific theater. My father had been in the U.S. Army. He was a medic on Guadalcanal for 18 wow. months. 18 Jeez. Guadalcanal, which is longer than anybody should. Yeah. So, so that's what I liked. I like carrier warfare. I couldn't get enough of it. Um, in ninth grade of high school, my big brother, Dave, who was uh, already off, off to an, a very good academic career at the Ohio State University as an English professor and poet of some note, he handed me a biography and he said, hey, you should read this. And it was Joachim Fest's biography of Hitler, uh, you know, because I was a smart kid in ninth grade. And sure, so sure, your older brother gives you a 700 page German academic <laughs> biography. And it was it just fascinated me, you know, the entire Hitler phenomenon, I, I guess you could say. I'd, I'd seen my share of movies, as every American does, and know that Hitler was the epitome of evil, and Fest's book, you know, did nothing to change my mind about that, but it put me in a time and a place of Germany in the 1920s. It looked like society was falling apart, and there was violence in the streets, and no one had a job, and the inflation was out of control, and then there was a, a depression, and the Germans turned, you know, in their wisdom or their folly, you know, to this, 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 private in World War II. We sometimes say corporal. He was a gefreiter, so he's a sort of lance corporal. It's, we have to, have to be very careful about what we call Hitler. I, I usually go for private now, by, by the way. Um, and it just was a fascinating, fascinating story to me. So um, I, I, off to the Ohio State University as an undergraduate, uh, I was very young. I skipped a grade. I was born in June, and then I skipped a grade early on. So I graduated high school at 16, and I was off to Ohio State. And I went through Ohio State in three years. I graduated from Ohio State at 19. Um, and and I took, had to take a foreign language. And, and those were the days, of course, when you still made American undergraduates take foreign language. I took German and I just had an aptitude for it. And suddenly I had that interest in World War II and this sort of burgeoning interest in, in, in the Third Reich 
and what, how did that come about? And now I had uh, uh, German language skills to pursue it. And I think, Bill, if you put all that together, you know, long, long story short, I go off uh, at 19 to graduate school, uh, Indiana University, and, and I rushed through that too. I got my PhD at 25, studying under Barbara wow. Yellow. Yeah. Really God, it's me. like you're still in diapers, yeah, man. That's, I mean, yeah. well, that's been, you know what? I was the youngest kid in the family. And then I was always the youngest kid in every class I was in in grade school, in high school, <laughs> University of Ohio State, graduate school. And then, you know, I, I came out in 84, just at a time when adults were starting to hit the higher education business in a big way. And I was often, there were times when I was the youngest person in the classes I was teaching. <laughs> um, so it's just, um, I, I like youth. <laughs> I like youth as much as the next guy. Even when I'm going for a fasting blood test for my blood sugar, I still like thinking of myself as a, as a, as a young kid. Um, being, a, being a professor, you guys know this, Boy, you, you sure do get to hang around young people all the time. Um, you, you, you know what they're watching on TV, what movies they've seen. They'll, they'll almost always share what music they're listening uh, to with you as well. And um, I'm out of the you know, higher academe business. I will talk about that. I'm in a museum. But I, I, I do miss that standard 18-year-old American undergraduate wearing an ACDC t-shirt or, or Led Zeppelin II was still quite popular on a t-shirt. And Brian was just Brian was just talking about that earlier today. We were chatting, and 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 I think one of your students is wearing a uh, yeah. I had a kid come in wearing a Pink Floyd shirt yesterday, yeah. and I said, "Do you actually are you a fan, or do you just buy that at Urban Outfitters?" And uh, he he actually was a fan. So good. Which one's pink? You should have asked him that. The famous line, <laughs> the famous line from Half a Cigar. You know, um, uh, Chuck Klosterman is a, a great writer of, you might say, creative nonfiction. He, he was a columnist for Spin and for a lot of other magazines. And my middle daughter, Laura, cannot get enough Chuck Klosterman. He, he says that there's an eighth grader wearing a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. And you see that kid and you said, boy, he, he reminds me of somebody I knew in eighth grade. And then he, he checked himself, Chuck did, and said, actually, he doesn't remind me of the kid. He is the same exact kid. <laughs> he likes the same music. He talks the same way. He dresses the same way. Um, I, I was fortunate to grow up in the 60s and 70s, but born in 58. And, um, you know, that culture, for good or for ill, still dominates all of us. You can't get away from it. It's selling you cars on TV. It's, 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 it's 14 year olds walking down the street. It's to me, the, 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 the staying power of that of that cultural moment has really, really impressed me. I think going digital in the in the nineties and two thousands as we did let us recover that, right, Bill? You and I are forever talking about old music that we hadn't heard in twenty years that we now have on CD again. You know, you're going through that whole U uh, two uh, thing in the nineteen eighties again, or whatever right. it is. You know, whoever it is you're listening to today, and and I do the same thing. I've completely recreated my love of Jefferson Airplane based on you know it used to be vinyl cassettes. No, and then hard CDs, and of course now it's just in the air, so it's fantastic. But now you've gone for a circle, and you're going back to vinyl yeah. because I know you have a vinyl <laughs> addiction problem, buddy. Well, uh, that was the next. I figured that would be the next question, so I didn't want to overstate. Yeah, no, that's 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 quite, that's quite all right. That's quite. But but how? So when you, you go off to Indiana, right, and and yeah. then how then how does it? How do you get then with the Vermont or? or oh. How does that dissertation then grow into this, this, this actually lifelong study of the Vermont? So I was already being told in the, in the late 70s, you know, you got to be careful about military history. You got to have a little bit broader interest. And so I sort well, of post-Vietnam, right? I mean, we're post-Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Anti- military right. to talk yeah. about. You can see tanks on, your, on the nightly news. 
you know, so, but, but when I got to Indiana, so I started working with Barbie Yelovich, if, if you know, she and her husband are pre the were the preeminent historians of East Central Europe, especially the Balkans, Southeastern Europe. Barbara did a lot of, of work on, on Russian and Soviet foreign policy. Her book, St. Petersburg to Moscow is probably still, I, I would say, you know, kind of a standard text. It still bears, uh, you know, uh, some investigation. I pick it up all the time when I need a thorny question. I remember reading it. I read it in grad school at Bowling Green. Yeah, uh, yeah. Early 90s. Yeah, same thing. Didn't be at all. So, so I wanted to do something about the Habsburg Empire all of a sudden because Barbara, you know, I just, I loved everything she said. It was so interesting. I had this interest in nationalism. Um, but, you know, I also took German history courses at, at Indiana. Um, I'd taken some all along at Ohio State and I just kept gravitating back to World War II. So eventually my dissertation was not about World War II as such. It was about German defense policy against Poland in the 1920s and 30s. So it was about, it was about the Treaty of Versailles. It was about being disarmed. It was about clandestine rearmament and clandestine military activities. It was about war planning for, for war with Poland. I actually read my first war games. Now, that keyed into me in, in uh, graduate school because I became a war gamer. Uh, for those of you who are too young to remember this, map sheets, hexagon shapes, little square counters that you moved across the map in, in the form of their, you know, in the, in the style of their military formations. And so um, here I am, I'm, I'm sort of playing these games. Think about Risk, but like a much more complicated version. Oh, it's the and original I'm, Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. man. Uh, that was sort of like Dungeons and Dragons, you know, video killed the radio star. Dungeons and Dragons killed the war gamer. So right. I mean, that, that's kind of what happened. Um, but I, so I had this topic that to me was of enormous interest and enormous richness. This notion that the Germans pioneered of the Kriegspiel, of playing out wartime scenarios and planning scenarios, not on a sheet, not on a map, but on a sort of on a sandbox with with uh, uh, terrain formations and roads and forests and your moves would be hidden from the enemy's side and they'd leave the room and you'd cover up yours with a with a sheet of paper and then they'd come you'd leave and they'd come back there were umpires to tell you you can't do that that you can't cross the river at that bridge the bridge has been washed out by a flood um you know it, it worked it worked well it worked beautifully on the level of tactics and military operations of course to, to get ahead of myself where it doesn't work well is like strategic allocation of resources and production and the logistics supply chain. I can't get a bottle of ketchup here in New Orleans to save my life right now. We now, <laughs> everyone, knows about the, everyone knows about the supply chain. So what the Germans were doing is perfecting tactics and, and operations, but, but probably neglecting the, uh, the, the, the level of strategy and what we might call from our war college days, Bill, grand strategy. Right, uh, yeah. economics right and it's the oval office and and, and beyond um so that's kind of I, I wrote that book and it was uh it it was called poland greift on in the dissertation which is the poles are attacking and it was yeah. about the whether the germans could defend themselves against a polish attack um it got published by greenwood press shout out um as the evolution of blitzkrieg tactics which is maybe a bit of a stretch but i had engaged <laughs> in that topic too the germans were seeking to offset the mass of their enemies with with harder hitting rapidity and harder hitting forces in motion, Bewegungskrieg, the Germans called it, the war of movement. Um, and so that started me as a military historian, but please note, uh, it was this is 87, it's the time when the US Army is just awash in all this talk of German doctrine. Matter of fact, I might've come a little late to the party, but I was my PhD was 84 and the book was 87. But, but it, 
for a book out with Greenwood Press and camera ready copy. Those of you again who are too yeah. young to remember. Same that. thing. No, first one, same thing. Yeah, with Prager. Uh, it 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 you know it's it, it sold five copies. I don't know. So it didn't sell many copies because it was you know largely for research libraries. But it sure jump started my career. I got a lot of interest that, there, and I realized I, I plumbed that for a while. Sort of the kind of planning and doctrine. I wrote another book uh, with. Uh, that exact title, you know, the rise of Blitzkrieg, uh, the path to Blitzkrieg, planning and doctrine in the, in the German army. And, and gradually then I just did what I wanted. Once I got a reputation, you know, word to all young military historians out there, write a couple of heavyweight, you know, monographs for your peers and, and, for, and for your committees. And then, you know, get a reputation and then then let it fly and write what you always wanted to write. And that's when I really started hitting World War II hard. I have now have extremely advanced German language skills. And, and I was able to, you know, look at documents and, and, and the professional literature of the German army in a way that I don't think many, you know, U.S. scholars have bothered to do. No, no offense well, to anyone. Well, hey, we're going to talk about your uh, your teaching, but I have a quick question going back to uh, your early influences. Was uh, Were you at Ohio State when Bill Palin was there? Is that who the German historian was? Oh, yeah, now you're taking me down memory lane, but... Um, Andreas Dorpalin was my uh, was was my undergraduate uh, professor. Uh, I was a history six twelve. I don't remember. It was you know an advanced course in German military history. I was a remember I was a pretty young pup. I think I took it as a sophomore. So I think I was seventeen. Wow. Uh, and and uh, he took a liking to this young guy in his class. And I, um, you may remember if you know Dorpalin that he, he was a polio victim as a child and he walked out yeah. to the cane. And you know it's one of those you walk into class and you're a young you know stoner. And, and you say this, th th oh no, this is like my grandpa is going to teach me history. I don't. And then, you know, we start talking and he's like, he's this brilliant, he's polymath. He knows everything about everything. And, you, you know, he lectured in a seated position, but you can just see the years, the infirmity, infirmity sort of slipping away. And I was in trance, I don't mind telling you. The first time you're in the presence of a world-class intellect, if you have any pretensions to living a life of the mind at all. You said, I'll never be this smart. I will, I will never even be in Andreas Dorpalin's ballpark. Yeah. Frankly, I'm still not sure that, that I am. Um, but boy, that, that, that class just turned me on. And again, he, I would walk into his car. I'd carry his books and walk into his car at the end of class. I just couldn't get enough Dorpalin. Um, you know, you have to, you have to give this, here's a, a German emigre, uh, you know, a, a cultured and elegant European and here I am in class. I'm 17. I have hair out to here. The I got the photos to prove it. You want some visuals for this podcast? Just let me know. I've, I've seen that picture of you and Roberta with your Cleveland Browns uh, jersey on. And so, yeah, you uh, got you got quite the thing going there. But let's just say this: in in his class, I wasn't even wearing a jersey. I was wearing a Y shirt. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not a T-shirt, but a men's undershirt, cut off jeans, and barefoot. Oh now, wow. <laughs> I want to say that I was the only person in class dressed that way, but of course that would be a lie. It's how most guys went to at least in my 75 to 78. You can just know the time I, I was there. But um, the, the point is, you know, he, he, he looked at me and, and, and saw something that I wasn't even sure I saw in myself yet. I'll give a shout out to one other professor who was, who taught me the undergraduate colloquium. So my senior year at, at Ohio state, uh, Williamson Murray. Yeah. His pre- yeah. Yale days, I, I guess. He, he went off from Ohio State. I think it might have been his first teaching gig. Um, and um, what a guy. Well, it, uh, it sounds like you had some. Bet. I, you know, he's, he probably still does. He's just, he was saying impulsive things. And I would say, oh my God, I wish I thought of that. 
his, his physical presence in class too. So anyway, I, I could go on and on and on. There, Ohio State was a wonderful incubator, has always been a wonderful incubator of talent. Well, it sounds like you, uh, you, you've, you paid it forward because uh, you developed quite a reputation for your, uh, your own teaching while you were at Eastern Michigan uh, University. And, and uh, if I recall correctly, at one time you were, you were rated the number one professor in the country on Rate My Professors. Well, you know, you have you come into class one day and your student says, hey, Dr. Satino, have you read the have you read USA Today this morning? And you know, my answer is, do I look like a person who reads USA Today? <laughs> my exact answer, which is what I always said when people ask me. And he said, well, you're in it. And so I opened it up and there was some, you know, Rob said, Dr. Rob said, you know, Eastern Michigan University was rated number one professor in the country by by ratemyprofessors.com. Um, so I'm flabbergasted. It's great. I, again, it, I, I can. <clears throat> it's a self-selected sample. <laughs> I mean, you know, ratemyprofessors.com is not, was not a scientific site. People who yeah. felt like called in, and and so you know, you could you could pick it apart and, and laugh. And I even made a joke about USA Today right now, but it would be pretty churlish to complain. A lot of my students over the years took precious time out of their day to punch my name into the US or to ratemyprofessors.com website and said what a great professor I was. They all they all they often mentioned my my enthusiasm. They said, this guy kind of knows everything about everything. You know, just what, what I always wanted someone to say about me, what I used to think about Dor Pollen. And then others would say, you know, he can really throw down on Neil Young lyrics. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, it was undergraduates largely. So, you know, they, their comments were all over the place. So I lived in Ypsilanti, Michigan at the time, Eastern Michigan, as you just mentioned. And um, they you know, so we're going to send over a camera crew and do some film. I said, great. So MTV. An MTV van pulls into my driveway. I, I did not know that ratemyprofessors.com was owned by MTV. They had bought it up. Wow, so I didn't need my daughter at home. Huh. You know, my, my eighth grade daughter, Emily, was still at home with us. Um, Bill knows Emily, Bill knows the whole family. She never really cared much about what I did for a living. She cared when that MTV <laughs> van pulled in. Let me tell you, there's cameras all over the place. I'm being interviewed by one of the on-air talent. Um, they say, hey, got guitars all over the place here. Do you play guitar? And I said, I sure do. So I got out the Telecaster and uh, turned on some you know, heavy fuzz tone. And I, I wailed through Black Dog by Led Zeppelin. And this being TV, the producer said, oh, sorry, there was some buzz there. Could you do uh-huh. <laughs> I wailed through it again. I, you know, I just had one of those magical days in which they, they would ask me questions, much like you're doing now, guys. And then I would you know, give pithy little answers. And then they would you know, surround that on their little, the, the, the little bit on, on, on screen with a lot of heavy metal guitar. <laughs> if you remember MTV, how MTV did, did quick cuts. Um, so it's like they, they would read me something someone said about me. Dr. Satino is the shit. <laughs> I don't know if say that on your podcast. And, and I, exactly. I responded and I said, I am the shit. <laughs> so it was, that, it was nothing serious. It was MTV. It was supposed to be quick cuts. So I, I laugh at it now. Uh, it, it's, it's a fun memory, a very fond memory in, in my mind. 20, Seven, 2007, I believe. Um, but, but again, I, uh, it just, it'd be silly. I, I take good nature ribbing for it all the time. And part of me, you know, is good natured about it. And part of me is like, okay, when you get rated number one, we can talk. Yeah. So you, you clearly, uh, you know, you had an impact in the classroom. Um, you don't have the opportunity to teach uh, on a daily basis anymore. Do you miss it or, or? Uh... Yes. Good question. I, so now I, I work at the National World War II Museum capital T, just like the Ohio State University, if you can believe it, every place I've gone. 
Um, so I'm a museum senior historian now, and I do not have a regular, you know, in-class experience three to five times a week as, as I used to. And I do miss it. I, I love the, I love being in class with students. Oh, sure. I, I don't want to pretty it up. You had your days. And I was like, gee whiz, this is the most ridiculous job anyone's ever invented. But, but those days were few for me. And, and usually it was much more, well, I think I made some kind of, I think I got through, I got that through today. That was complicated, but I, I hope they understood what I was talking about. Mostly it was about it was about hope and, and a sense of, of achievement. Now that's balanced. I, I have a huge audience at the National World War II Museum of our visitors. Pre-COVID, it was a three quarters of a million a year and we're working our way back up to that. But there's almost um, a week doesn't go by that there's not some group who needs a speaker here in New Orleans or elsewhere. A week doesn't go by that we don't have an author uh, who comes and talks about her or his book and usually is interviewed by me in front of a in front of an audience, when COVID hit, we did steady webcams. The museum's presence nationally has allowed me to be on the Today Show and CBS Morning News from the 75th anniversary of D-Day live at the Omaha Beach Cemetery. I was, we spent hours with Anthony Mason. Saying, oh, and here comes Marine 3, Anthony. Or, you know, the, the, the things you, you talk about when you're online, when you're sort of that talking head. So I still, I have an audience um, and I like talking to an audience of any sort, but there's nothing quite like, bunch of undergraduates. I really do miss that. Well, I bet you're still grading them. Yeah. <laughs> that was well, my next thing. I was one thing I was going to mention is that um, we do have a partnership with Arizona State University. Right. Uh, the museum does. And we offer a master's degree in World War II studies, interdisciplinary. We teach some of the courses, museum personnel and ASU teaches some of the other courses. As you may know, they're the jefe in the, in the distance learning business here in the United States. I don't know if anyone's in their league size-wise. And so um, that it's graduate work. And I, I, I film lectures. It's asynchronous, if you know what that means. So you're never online with 40 students at once. You film a lecture and they watch it. It's all done in the can before the class opens. Um, and, and then I, I do in, uh, interplay with the online discussion boards and then I do great. So I'm still in the grading and, and teaching business, but there is, there's a hole in my heart where, where uh, uh, being in class with a bunch of students once existed. Well, I, uh, before we move on, um, I, I actually, when you left Eastern Michigan, I had an on-campus to replace you, and uh, I didn't get the job, but uh, I remember thinking, I feel bad for whoever gets this job, because all they did is talk about how amazing you are, and, oh, well, that, that, <laughs> and, and, and clearly you, uh, you, you had uh, you'd left some big shoes to fill. So, uh, oh, that's very yeah. nice of you to say. When I, but, but, but let me just say this. That happens everywhere you go. When I got hired at Eastern Michigan, so I had been at Lake Erie College for many years, a small school in Painesville, Ohio. It used to be Lake Erie College for women, and then it had gone co-ed right before I arrived. Men don't break the door down as soon as you go co-ed, as you probably know. So it was a struggle to get some kind of balance and to keep enrollment. So when I got to Eastern Michigan University in 1991, you'll never, you'll never replace Reinhard Whitke. Reinhard Wittke was their senior German historian and a wonderful guy and a scholar and a brilliant teacher. And, you know, you just do your best. Of yeah. course, I, I ne no, no way would I, am I, would I replace Reinhard Wittke? And I didn't. I just tried to carve out my own thing. But that's very nice of you to say thanks. So you've, uh, you did a couple of years at West Point. You, you taught at West Point for a year of visiting, visiting professorship. And then... Uh, we, we crossed a year at the Army War College where I was the, the, the vaunted General Harold, Harold K. Johnson visiting chair of military history. And then you were there and then you, you followed me in, that, in that, that, that very, you know, I'll say it, very prestigious chair. I'm still flabbergasted that I actually For was sure, that. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you this, um, 
you know, you're my brother, man. And we are forever linked on that plaque outside that office door for the Johnson chair at the Army War College. My name and your name right next to each other. That's for sure, Bill. Um, people don't know what a warm-hearted soul you are, but you left me an entire bowl <laughs> of, of Reese's peanut butter cups after you left in my office, knowing full well that I'm a, I'm a diabetic and couldn't touch them. But thankfully, Roberta worked her way through that. Just, through that just trying to just trying to help you out, man. Just trying just trying to do what I can. You know, um, um, when I got the call from from West Point, so this was in 2008, and I was teaching at uh, Eastern Michigan University, and I was. Uh, I got a call. I wasn't from Kevin, Colonel Kevin Farrell, who was on the faculty at the time, I believe. Um, he said, we'd like to invite you to be the Samuel, uh, uh, Charles, excuse me, Charles Bowl Ewing, visiting professor of military history for the 2008-09 academic year. I was flabbergasted. I, I banged out a few books by that time and I was having fun. And, and Eastern Michigan treated me beautifully, gave me a, a sabbatical or a, a, a faculty resource fellowship every two years are the same thing. You got to take a semester off and, and I rewarded the university by writing another book. But you know, Eastern Michigan University Regional School has a directional school as, as we like to say, right? As a directional in the name. And it had great faculty, but I, I didn't consider it to have a, a huge national reputation. But that's when I realized that well, somebody must be reading these books. I'd gotten, you know, published by University Press of Kansas a few times and as some another plateau in my career working with Mike Briggs at the time. What a brilliant brilliant editor. Um, so yeah, you said, you know, I'm flabbergasted that, that uh, uh, Ohio State wanted me and, excuse me, that um, West Point wanted me. Start that over. Are you guys, you're going to edit this, right? No, we're no, not. not at no, all. no, we're not going to edit it all. You, you, you're, you're assuming we had skills at this and we don't. So you're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're committed to that comment, buddy. <laughs> I was flabbergasted. I was flabbergasted that, that West Point wanted me. I, I still to this day, it seemed funny. I, I've already described myself, you know, Ohio State with hair out to here and playing guitar and kind of a stoner type is just who I was at the time. Um, and, and now I was, you know, I was in the sort of in the belly of, of all of this right there in the middle of the defense establishment. But of course, a very unusual part of the defense establishment, PME. Um, it's not big army, so to say, you know, tanks didn't drive by my, you know, my classroom window. But boy, I, I met some wonderful people there um, and met some wonderful faculty members uh, there. I gotta say this, do you wanna work at West Point? You, you work your behind off. <laughs> the, there's, there's only so many hours in the day, but West Point fills them up in, in style. So um, Bill, uh, a little later, the, to 13 to, in 2013, when I was invited to the War College, the Johnson Chair, I was less flabbergasted, but I was like, wow, man, something, I, I had no idea. I must be saying something that is either interesting to people or that people think is important. And that it's that sense of validation. The same way when you get a book up, wow, the press believed in me. You win an award for one of those books wins a, a, like the, the SMH award. You say, wow, my peers really, you know, they're, they're impressed with what I do. Then you get a call from the war college. You say, wow. So anyway, I don't mean to belabor like uh, how all these wonderful moments in my life, um, but the, the war college was another one. Got there. Loved the students. I love the you know our our fellows, especially the international fellows. They're colonels largely from you know from foreign armies. So, Eric Christofferson, who is the defense chief in Norway today, you know, is somebody who's in in one of my classes. I, it's it's mind blowing to me when I look back on it. Once again, a really really good faculty as well. So I, I you know we PME exists to be the object of criticism. 
<laughs> There's an entire right. industry that, that does nothing but criticize PME. And, you know, I've been critical of some of the things I saw at Ohio State or some of the things I saw at the, at the War College as well. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm really glad that our, you know, our military establishment spends so much money uh, attempting to, uh, to educate its cadets, its sort of undergraduate, soon-to-be junior officers, its middle, its middle and field grade officers at Leavenworth, and then it's, you know, it's, it's, it's senior uh, officers in, in, uh, in the War College system. I, uh, my boss here at the um, National World War II Museum is Mike Bell, who was the dean for many years at the National Defense University. So right. I'm having a conversation about, uh, about PME with Mike, just not, you know, not. So what, what, you know, with, with that experience with professional military education, especially at the War College, what, what do you see, what is, you know, they, they always have history in the curriculum. In, yeah. in some form or fashion. So you and I both taught, you know, theory of war and strategy, which was very much a history-based course. Um, I mean, what do you what do you think the value of that that is for for officers, especially at the senior level? You know, do we learn lessons from history? Do we learn lessons from military history? And I, I think it was Michael Howard who said, "Well, it's hard to imagine where else you'd learn lessons." <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if if not history, that would be my first question. If not history, then what? Theory invented in a black box, theory invented in a room that's never been tested, t- tested by any empirical method. That's how you wind up with, you know, daylight strategic bombing in World War II, unescorted daylight strategic bombing. No one ever tested it. And, and suddenly, you know, planes are being shot out of the sky with abandon. So, yeah, it's I like, mean, let's I, go do that. Yeah. <laughs> let's try that one. Um, so I think that's the first place I would start, you know, so where, where else exactly are you going to learn your lessons? But, you know, this, the second thing to remember about military history is that military is an adjective, but the noun is history. And, and if we learn anything about as young graduate students, and then maybe writing our dissertations is when the lesson really hits home. So just about any proposition you make uh, uh, is, is questionable in history. And that you have to dot your I's and cross your T's and do your research and be humble about your findings and be willing to be criticized and be willing to engage in self-criticism. That's history, right? That's what we do as historians. And so um, it seems to me that the thing that, that a professional historian can bring to a military education is just that. You, you can learn slogans and sayings. You can learn that all of Herodotus can be, excuse me, edit that. You can learn that all of Thucydides can Thucydides, be- Thucydides, Herodotus, they all, they, all use, they use the same bus for all those well, guys, right? I, you, know. you, you can, you know, you can think that you can boil Thucydides down to three words, fear, honor, interest, because it's exactly. what people do at the U.S. Army War College. But of course, Thucydides is those three words and about 10 million others. Yeah. Uh, and the arguments are very complex. You can boil down Clausewitz to something called a trinity um, and, and think you're done. You know, that's book one, chapter one. <laughs> I'm just saying it's one paragraph in book one, chapter one. The arguments are complex. So when the army talks about things like its doctrine, I think a thinking officer needs to be aware that doctrine is a religious concept about things you must believe. It's not really the right word for the guidelines that should, you know, help you formulate sensible military operations. So I, I think that that military history is important because it can teach a sense of the of war's complexity, uh, both to scholars, to interested members of the public, but also even to operators. I, I, I really do think that reading Thucydides is it was good for the students at the War College. I didn't read the whole thing, 
we selected portions of it, you know, because it's a side of beef. <laughs> it's a doorstop. Yeah. But 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 what is there? And likewise for likewise for Clausewitz, I I think it's a it's a good thing to to teach Clausewitz to have our our officers, our colonels read some portion of Clausewitz. In the oral exams we did the years I was there, Bill, right? The oral exams we just right. they were yeah. Students wanted to torch the administration building over them, as I recall, which, you know, whenever you put something new in. Um, one of our international fellows that I, I tested, you were not allowed to test students who've been in your class. I don't know if you remember that. So it was, it was all mixed and matched right. in the army way. And one of the students was a colonel from the Mongolian army. And man, he, talk about throwing down, he threw down on Clausewitz like anybody I've ever heard. And then, you know, because he, he's sort of grown up in this military tradition where you talk about Genghis Khan a lot. And he probably learned that, well, Genghis Khan, there's a huge number of people in the West who have written on Genghis Khan, many of them in a sort of nonsensical way. You know, I just think it had led him into a deeper appreciation of some of the principal sources of military history. And boy, he sure knew his Clausewitz. I remember thinking, I remember standing or sitting there thinking, this is an out-of-body experience. I'm talking to a colonel in the Mongolian army about Clausewitz. And he seems to understand it better than I do. I was just saying, would you slow down, please, so I can take notes? I was very, very impressed. So, so I think that's, I think the complexity of the whole uh, uh, enterprise is probably what military history can best offer to a military education. Well, I know, you know, I, I mean, I similar experience um, there. And, and of course, for me, the great thing was, is since I was geo batching it, Jennifer was back, you know, back home. Mm-hmm. About two years I was there and, and for you and Roberta to be there that year and, and hanging out with you guys on, on a Friday night or Saturday night and having having Manhattans and breaking out the guitars and doing a little Norwegian stuff. wood and sympathy for the devil and stuff like that. Uh, and then talking about Clausewitz and Thucydides yeah. and uh, it never it never stops. Uh, yeah. And be in the middle of a conversation about the the beauty of the drum sound that, you know, is the, the Zeppelin achieves on when the levee breaks and suddenly it'll just turn into some kind of disquisition on, on Clausewitz. It's just, right. it's, not a, well, it's a mental handicap, I guess I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we should take a little break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some, some more very festive and fun things with Rob Satino. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Hey folks, Military Historians for People 2 wants to give a big shout out to the University Press of Kansas. Founded in 1946 and representing the six universities in the Sunflower State, the University Press of Kansas publishes work on a wide range of history, including regional studies, American politics, the presidency, public policy, and legal studies. But in our biased opinion, the University Press of Kansas is best known for its outstanding books on military history including the long-standing series Modern War Studies, Civil-Military Relations Studies, and the War on the Screen series, among others. Kansas books reach a wide audience both inside and outside the scholarly universe and have been recognized for their contributions to important scholarly and public debates. Follow the University Press of Kansas on Twitter at Kansas underscore press and visit www.kansaspress.ku.edu for more information. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. (music) 
So we're back with Rob Rob Satino and military historians or people too. Sounds like a radio show. It right? does. Rob, we just want to ask a, a few more things. And, and one is, uh, you know, your work at the World War II Museum, you, you touched on it uh, some in the first segment that, you know, you have a lot of interaction with the public. Uh, there's probably a couple of things. You know, what are your perceptions of what the public assumes about World War II that, that you know, is is in the ballpark and is not in the ballpark. Uh, and also, you know, you have an opportunity there to, to brush, brush shoulders with a lot of not, not only great scholars and authors, but, you know, uh, your random Rolling Stones drummer might walk, walk through the museum one day. Uh, what, what's been your experience with that? You're giving away all my good material there, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, first, first question first. Um, we serve the, you know, the broad, public. We are a public history institution. And, you know, public history and scholarly history are not really the same thing at all. In scholarly history, everything is open for question. And there is no, there is never a consensus because there'll always be someone to come along and shatter the consensus. For the public, many questions about something like World War II are pretty much settled. And for the American public, one of them, for example, would be, was it right to drop the atomic bomb at the end of the war? Most Americans at the time thought so. And most Americans today think so. I mean, I'm, I can tell you that flat out just based on the people who walk through our museum. Um, I could argue with them as a scholar and talk about this document or that document, and sometimes I do, you know, just to, to sort of broaden the terms of, of the discussion. Um, I don't find culture wars going on at our museum. Uh, I, I think most people, most of our visitors are open to different interpretations and they're always willing to have a, a discussion. But, but, but at the end of the day, they're like, well, something happened and, and you know, this is what happened. Um, so it's a little bit different view of, of how history and how the past still exists today than scholarly uh, historians have. Um, there's just not a lot of discussion about also about whether or not President Roosevelt somehow provoked the Japanese into bombing Pearl Harbor. Um, most of the American public doesn't really think that's a discussion. They, we were sitting there one Sunday morning and got bombed. There's a sort of run up, you know, decades of run up of tension between the two countries. And there's two solid years of, of real tension between the two countries, just the short of war. President Roosevelt sending the, 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 the Pacific fleet from San Diego, where I was recently, and, and flip, you know, sending it out to Pearl Harbor as a, sign, a show of strength against the Japanese. Clearly, he was contending for something in, in the middle of the Pacific. But by and large, you know, that, that's a settled question in the public history sphere and to, you know, constantly claim that, well, there's new documents and it's still in flux. It's what historians of the scholarly bent do, but it really has very little impact, I found, on the broad mass of the American public, which is very interesting to me. Um, now, um, there are days at the museum when you just simply say, I just can't believe this happened. And one of them happened a couple of years ago and a call from visitor services and says, so a big, a, a kind of an entourage just came in of an older English gentleman. And somebody said he's the drummer for some English band. <laughs> well, we went back and forth and, and figured out eventually that Mr. Charles Watts was, was visiting the National World War II Museum because apparently he's a World War II, was a World War II buff and visits museums all the time whenever he, whenever the, the, the Stones are touring around. Did his father, I mean, I'm sure all, most of it, but I think his father, father was a veteran. his father was, uh, in, was yeah. I, I, I think so. I would have to look that up, but yeah. I, I family participation. It'd be hard to be his age and not have family participations right. in, in World War II and British. Um, so uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the folks from the Marcoms Division, Marketing and Communications, his name is Dave Walker. Dave, if you're out there, um, I haven't seen you in a while, hello. Uh, Dave and I sort of divided the museum up into search groups. <laughs> 
on a desperate attempt to find Charlie Watts. And this is New Orleans. So there's a hurricane that's supposed to hit in two hours and virtually everyone is leaving the museum, but not, not Dave and I. <laughs> and we finally brought Charlie to ground somewhere outside of the American Sector Restaurant, which is a restaurant on, on campus. And, you know, uh, I think shook hands at home, Mr. Watts, thank you for coming to the museum. I'm the senior and, and and so that was my Charles Watts moment, Charlie Watts moment. It's fantastic. Well, you know, I, I don't have I don't have words for that. Um, That's former, cool. Former Governor Huckabee and and his best pal um, Jeff Carlisi, the former guitar player for Thirty Eight Special. Ooh. Hold on loosely. Wow. Yeah. You everyone knows these songs. Yeah. Um, visited the museum and Jeff and I became you know became friends. We when he was in town, he and his wife and Roberta and I would get together for dinner and. He would show me pictures of when he was hanging out with Skinner in Jacksonville when they were all 17 years old. And I have a great picture of, of Ronnie Van Zant looking like he's 15 because uh, they all hung out together. You know, um, uh, sort of uh, Southern fried rock, right, as they call it. Much of it came from Jacksonville, Florida. It, it's not really Muscle Shoals or rural Alabama. or It's, it's Jacksonville, Florida. And, and that was Jeff and, and you know, and Skinner and, and I guess Tom Petty and a bunch of other bands, as, as a matter of fact. So, yeah, there, um, there are moments that, that things happen at the museum. Uh, I'll be in a meeting and, and uh, ex-governor Christy Todd Whitman will walk in. She's one of our trustees and she'll be followed by ex, you know, uh, 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 ex-governor Pete Wilson of California, who is also one of our, our trustees. George Stevens Jr. is son of George Stevens, the right. director of Shane. Uh, is is a good friend of the museum. He's done, given us a lot of advice on our film projects. He, of course, uh, film, founded the American Film Institute. And I was once at his house, and George began telling me a story. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, and then, yes, it, actually, I checked that. I was not at his house. I was leading uh, George to the museum one time, and we came across a little text panel about his father taking footage on the, you know, on the on the beaches at Normandy. And George just t told me, started telling me an amazing story, and it started with this sentence. He said, you know. I remember when I was on the set while my father was filming Shane and I said, George, you don't even have to finish that sentence. <laughs> you can say, and I ate a hamburger. I, I wouldn't care. The fact that I was, I mean, I was, you talk about six degrees of separation. I was in touch with Hollywood. George Stevens Jr. is Hollywood royalty. His father is Hollywood royalty. Shane is one of the greatest films ever made. And so um, it's, um, we have a, we have a broad reach at the museum. We, we have, you know, the broad public, and we really are fortunate to have a lot of, uh, of, of gifted and, and, and quite accomplished people who've helped us in our mission. That's cool. Well, at this point in your career, you've got a, a pretty big academic footprint, uh, a couple of SMH Distinguished Book Awards. Uh, you're one of the only people, along with Brian Lynn, who's pulled that off. Um, the uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison Award. And so uh, as we close up here before the rapid fire, I wonder... What do you think uh, is next? What needs to be done with the study of Germany in World War II? I think German history, military history of World War II was all about operations in the 80s. And now it's really, it's been subsumed into the broader story of the Holocaust. But, but German military operations in World War II and the Holocaust are not the same thing. They, they require different methods of analysis. They require different kinds of, different, different kinds of evidence. I, I, I guess I would say different lines of argumentation. The, 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 the debate within Holocaust scholarship, which is now largely, I guess, old school uh, it, it, between intentionalism and functionalism, you know, that really, they, that had not, that didn't have any impact on, on the military side at all. So I guess I'm, I, I'm, I, I think Holocaust historiography and, and the whole notion of violence against civilians has been a crucial corrective to our worship of the Wehrmacht. But I also think that there's also ways in which those two fields 
could benefit from one another, but still be doing their own things. Okay. That's cool. Uh, okay. This is the fun part because the rest the, the, the previous stuff has all been just, you know, business and, and you know, whatever. Well, and, I right? said, and when was Ohio State? No, wait a minute. I was in Indiana. No, wait. You and, your, you and your Charlie Watts stories oh, and stuff like that. So this little segment's called Rapid Fire. We're going to ask you 10 questions. Telecaster. <laughs> Don't jump the gun. Yeah. Uh, Brian will ask you a couple. I'll ask you a couple. Great. And uh, cool. so you ready? All right. I was born ready. All right, here we go. Brian, go. Last book you read not related to the history you do. Death in a Handsome Cab, a 19th century Australian murder mystery. Okay. Best work of history you've read recently? Christian Hartmann, German scholar. Uh, his biography of Franz Halder, the chief of the army general staff in World War II, just finished it. Great book. All right. Hopefully, best, hopefully, of course. Best World War II film? Always a tough one. Broadsword Colin Boy. Broadsword I would say, I would say although people may quibble with <laughs> World War II, but it is World War II. Stalling 17. Bill Holden, J.J. Septon, if I ever see you, Cruds, let's pretend we never met. First great anti Is that Billy Wild? Did Billy Wild? Who direct, directed that? Do you remember? I think it's Billy Wilder. Yeah. Billy Wilder, right? Yeah. George Stevens Jr. would know. Let me just tell you that. Yeah, there you are. Okay, this is a really important one. Your local restaurant, you and Roberta frequent there in New Orleans. Where do you go the most? That is not even, that is a no brainer for me. Herb Saint. Herb Saint. Herb Saint is one of the five greatest restaurants in America, and it happens to be my neighborhood joint. It's Roberta, I can look out our window and practically see it. It's a three minute walk. Best old fashions. Say again? The best old fashions. Oh, oh, yeah. Best, best, best everything. It's just best brilliant. everything. What do you love about being in this business? Meeting people, talking with people, shooting the breeze with other historians, much like this hour. What's the worst aspect of it? Too many deadlines always happen to fall on the same afternoon. It's uncanny. What is one book on World War II that you think everyone should read? Not your own. <laughs> I'm searching around the room right now. I like still, it's outdated in some ways. Little Heart, History of the Second World War. Um, because of the writing, but but also because Little Heart was specifically trying to reach a, a bigger audience than other historians or military officers. Right. Okay, last three. These are crucial. Manhattan or cosmopolitan? Manhattan. Leo Fender or Les Paul? Leo Fender. And lastly, complete this sentence. Pay attention. All I want for Christmas is a big honking Gretsch hollow body. There you go. There you go. Outstanding. Outstanding. That was well done, sir. You set, you set me up for that, Bill. <laughs> hey, man, this has been a blast. We really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I can't thank you enough. If I can just say one one last shout out to, to my my wife Roberta, with whom I shared a you know, relatively small apartment during during COVID, um, those of you who know Roberta, feel free to give her a holler and tell her that Rob wants that big old crutch hollow body for Christmas. We do a favor. We'll do, man. We'll see what we can do with our uh, our newly established Gretsch, Gretsch connections down here. That's right. You guys are going to be the epicenter of. The Gretchen Center. I don't even know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the the music department, I think, has been named right, and yeah. then um, they're opening a uh, kind of museum, inter, uh, 
music venue downtown Savannah. So it's been a real, you know, it's, there's a lot of stuff going on with that, which is great. Yeah. Those so, guitars are beautiful. I, I remember being a Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young fan and both Neil and Steven playing those big Gretsch white Falcons. Oh, man. oh have you seen that special edition, uh, Malcolm Young's special edition jet? Uh, I have not Gretsch, seen Yeah. Yeah. ACDC. I mean, it, what, what, I think it's, he calls it the beast or that's what he, you know, his guitar, he calls it the beast. Right. But um, I think it's like, I know it's like something like, you know, $4,000 or something like that. So, yeah, there's that. You know, I'll, I'll, have to, <laughs> I'll have to get a grant for that, right? That's right. So That's right. it's research. Everything is research. Um, I would also say to your listeners, please come down to New Orleans, check out the National World War II Museum, and also this brilliant city that, that you know, that surrounds it. Um, there's a lot to do when you come down here, and it's not just the museum. One of America's great cities and an absolutely unique environment. Well, Jennifer and I always like to go mainly just to see you and Roberta. Well, I appreciate time. that. That's, yeah. You know, yeah. Doors always hey. open. Thanks a lot. Uh, doors always open to you, not to all those listeners out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>well that was fun rob's such a great guy and and such a good historian and um you know what an what an experience of a career uh, to go from being in academe and then getting out of it giving up tenure and all that to go to you know work at the world war ii museum and be you know really a significant influence there uh, that, that was interesting that was really fun yeah it's always refreshing to talk to someone who's had so much success, but is uh, still really, uh, really grounded and uh, and willing to to talk to a couple of guys like us um, and uh, and share share some experiences from his career. And uh, it's it's good to to see someone like Rob who you know started off uh, early on at you know just teaching a four four and uh, kind of worked his way up the ladder. And so I think everyone can appreciate it when when someone has has really had to. Uh, to work for the success they've had. Can you imagine though being 17 and going to Ohio State, right? And then and then I mean you, you got your PhD when you're what like 20 25 or something? Yeah, that's gosh. That's unheard wow. of. That's unheard of. I mean, you know, uh we look at applications when we have job candidates. I can't remember ever seeing a situation like that where someone has has finished up and not only finished but had produced a dissertation that could then be turned into a book, you know. Right. So so right. did good work as as someone in yeah, his exactly. early 20s. No, and, and I tell you what, he is an amazing guitar player. Uh, I just remember sitting sitting with him at his place when we were in Carlisle and yeah, he taught me a lot of stuff, but uh, he was just, and, and he's one of those disgusting people who can play the guitar, piano, mandolin. He's a wicked bass player. I don't think I've never seen him do is play the drums, but uh, that would just be too much. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm jealous, uh, not only of the success he's had, but uh, one of my, my real regrets is not learning to play guitar when I was a kid. I tried and uh, it didn't work out for me. And I'm always envious of those people who just have natural musical talent. Hey, it's never too late, man. <laughs> the YouTube has all kinds of great stuff for it to distract you. I promise you. Um, but no, that, that was that was a, a, a really great chat. I, I hope uh, people enjoy it. We'll, we'll enjoy it. And, uh, you know, just get a sense of who, you know, somebody like Rob Satino, who, who he really is, what makes him tick and what he's into. I really enjoyed his comments about 
the war college, uh, you know, professional military education, the role of history and yeah. everything. I think that's a lot of th uh, something that the broader audience probably is not aware of, doesn't realize that that's uh, so important um, right. part of our, you know, part of our military education program. I mean, if you're an officer, colonel, lieutenant colonel, colonel, you're probably going to spend up probably at most, you know, maybe up to half of your career in school of some sort, yeah. which, you know, we, that's one of the reasons why we have the best educated officer corps probably in the world. And uh, I think that's fine. I think that's good taxpayer investment, actually. So, but he's, you know, he, he testified to that. And then, that, and, and that was, that's been my experience too. So I was really, I was really interested in, in his comments on that. Yeah. It's all also uh, great to see that, that he understands that even though he's had a lot of academic success, that it's important to make your work accessible to the general public. And we didn't get a, a chance to talk about this, but you know he publishes uh, a lot of his books with University of Kansas Press, right. um, academic. But then he's also, uh, you know, he's he's writing for general history uh, magazines. Yeah, that, it's like in World public. War II right. magazine he's, all yeah, the time. You know, the kind uh, of guy that's going to but... show up on the History Channel. Yeah, and uh, right. and that's good to see because I think one of the challenges that uh, academic historians have is is making their work accessible to the general public. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that was that was fun. Uh, I guess the only errors I I, I think were were uh, I, I counted I think I counted that Rob received twelve emails uh, during during our, our recording. Yeah. Uh, when, his, when his computer was dinging, um, and then and then um, I think when we took the break, I said we'll be back in a few minutes. We're probably going to be back in right, a few seconds. Right in a few seconds, yeah. <laughs> but we're learning. Uh, yeah. We're this is early days for for uh, military historians or people too, and uh, that was really fun. So I think we're off to a great start, man. Yeah, and uh, if you happen to be in New Orleans, please stop by the National World War II Museum and check out what uh, Rob and his staff are doing down there. It is well worth the trip. So thank you. We appreciate you listening, and we hope you will join us next time. Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not B.J. Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.